Hi, my name is Steve Ruth. This edition of the podcast is a story that I wrote in 2001. I was going to a community college and uh, had to take a writing class as a prerequisite course. And the topic for this particular paper, for this assignment, was um, writing about uh, an event that happened in our life, either a negative or a positive event that happened in our life that... Um, that changed us. The title of this story is My Transformation. There isn't a mean bone in my body. My conscience would never allow it, though I'm sure my three sisters would quickly disagree. Maybe there was a time or two that my picking went a little far, especially to my parents' ears, but it was all an innocent fun. I didn't believe in bringing physical harm to anything living or not, and at a young age, I believed that the hurtful things I did would come back to haunt me later in life, and I did my best to prevent this. Early in my childhood, I learned to feel for things, sentimentally and passionately. Both sets of my grandparents were farmers almost all of their lives, until the corporate farmers of Midwest America made it hard for small-town farmers to make a living. When I was seven years old, my great-grandparents were still plowing away, making what little money they could off of their 120 head of cattle. They also had chickens and pigs that were fed by my hands every afternoon when my dad would draw, drag me along with them up to the farmhouse. It was understood that it was my chore alone to collect the eggs from the chicken coop. I always picked the brown ones first, then the white. I saved the best for last. Something just didn't sit right with me about a chicken egg coming out brown. Dad had told me once that the brown ones came out the wrong hole while the chickens were laying them. And I knew better than to believe him. But nevertheless, I remember one morning after my dad telling me that, that I made my mom promise me that she would never cook the brown ones for me, only the whites. Dad was always telling me stupid jokes like this just to see how gullible I was. After the eggs were carried into the house, I would dig two scoops of grain out of a big drum and dump them in a pail and carry it to Dad. He would stop whatever he was doing and fill the bucket with water until it was just the right mixture of slop. This was always my favorite part, watching the pigs eat. I always wished that I was strong enough to lift the bucket and tall enough to pour it over the fence and into the trough. Pigs were like wild boars at feeding time. You never went into the pen to feed them and Dad reminded me of this every day. Don't get too close to that fence, boy. I know, Dad. Well, I'm just warning you. Those pigs are vicious hellions at feeding time. They'll grab you by the cuff of your pants, drag you through the mud and the shit, and your mother will make you take all of your clothes off outside, and she'll hose you down. The way that my dad would tell me this in such detail, I knew for a fact that it had happened to him. Oh, yes, sir, he was preaching from experience though I would never dare ask him if he had learned the hard way. <clears throat> I would stand there and watch the pigs fight each other for a place around the slot bin until I just couldn't stand to hear the squealing anymore. And one day, on my way back to the garage, I heard great-grandpa tell Dad that the time had come for slaughtering. Dad said that he would be back early Saturday morning. I flew into the garage, begging to be able to come along too and I was shot down faster than my sister could say Stupid Steve, which was my nickname when my parents were out of earshot. 
My father was raised on this farm from the day he was born until the day he was drafted by the army for Vietnam. His father was the son of the giant of a man who stood there with us in the garage. Great-grandpa cleared his throat and said, Bert, let the boy come along. And that was it. It was settled. At that moment, I looked at my father and saw him as myself, not daring to argue. My friends would be envious. I couldn't wait to tell them that I was going to get to butcher pigs. Heck, after this weekend, I'd probably be spoken to by the grown-ups like I was a teenager. I lay in bed that night wondering what the men would have me do for them. Usually, they said, you're helping us most by staying out of our way. I remembered that my friends and I had planned to work on our tree fort. Ah, but they'd get along fine without me. Besides, I was going to butcher pigs. I was too old to play in tree forts anyway. I was almost asleep when I overheard my parents talking in their room. Mom was furious that I was going. Of course, she thought that I was too young to witness such a bloody ritual. Mothers. Dad calmly told her, Great-grandpa said to let him come. If you don't want him to go, then tomorrow you call him and tell him yourself. Saturday morning, I was up before the roosters. When we pulled into the drive, there was a group of old farmers, some I knew, some I didn't, standing by the pig pen. Great-grandpa met us at the car, his cheek full of tobacco. He's, he always offered me some, along with a sly grin, and I always declined with a big smile. Just the smell of that stuff made my stomach turn. Then he would reach up, lightly touch my ear, and pull his fingers back holding a golden butterscotch candy. Well, I believed that he was a true magician. He could hold his pipe up to his ear and blow smoke rings out of his mouth. Once when I was telling my older cousin about this, he started laughing at me, telling, how, telling me how stupid I was for believing it. To prove it was a trick, he took out a cigarette, lit it, took a long drag, and then held the butt of it to my forehead and blew the smoke in my face. It didn't matter what my cousin could do. No one would convince me that it wasn't magic. Everything great-grandpa did was magical to me. The men socialized for a few minutes. Then the first hog was drug into the garage. I think it must have known its doom because it resisted the same way I did getting my first haircut. It took three of the farmers to get it to budge, and they were all big men. The sound of the sharpener made my hair stand on end as it cut away the dull edge of the blade. And as the knife quickly made its way from one side of the hog's neck to the other, the blood spilled out like paint from a can, almost transparent at the top by the rim of its throat. For what seemed like hours, my eyes were riveted to this horrific sight. My heart was pounding the word run, yet I couldn't turn away. Finally, my feet broke free from where they were stuck in my corner of the garage, and amidst all of the squealing and screeching and running blood and men scurrying about, I quietly slipped over the threshold that separated life from death. As I was walking away, I decided that maybe it would be better for me to remain a kid for a few more years. No sense in wishing my life away. I didn't swear off bacon or pork chops, but I didn't want to know the process they went through to get to my dinner table. I spent the rest of the day skipping rocks across the pond down below the barn. I was trying to twist off a cattail that was three times my size when I heard the old John Deere grumbling toward me. When I was off playing on the farm and Dad needed me, he would crank up the old tractor because he knew I'd come running for a ride. It felt like I was two stories off of the ground, sitting on the fender just inches 
above the big rear wheels. I took a sideways glance into the garage as I was getting into the car to head home. Everything was dead quiet. The only evidence of what took place were the blood prints stamped on the dull gray floor by the tread of the farmer's boots. The pigs were packaged up a pound at a time, wrapped in white paper and tied with a red string. Nothing went to waste. Until I was 10 years old, the soap we used to bathe with was made out of pig lard and lye. I remember one day soon after, I went with my mom to visit my grandparents. When I opened their refrigerator, there on the middle shelf, eye to eye with me, was one of the pig's heads. Its beady eyes staring me down like those of the old lady in the painting at my aunt's house, whose lifelike eyes would eerily follow me around the room, making sure I never touched what I wasn't supposed to. The pig looked to be smiling, a little smirk at the corner of its mouth. I guess it couldn't see its tongue and feet floating in the pickle juice in the jar next to it. The elementary school I attended was nine houses up the hill from mine. So before and after school, my place was the hangout. Monday morning, my friends were there early. They wanted a play-by-play -play commentary of the killings. I shrugged Saturday's events off as nothing special, just some pigs being turned into bacon and sausage. Of course, that wasn't what they wanted to hear. I refused to tell them how loud a pig could scream or how much blood a hog's head held. I didn't want to relive those details again. After a few minutes of trying to convince them that it was a lot more fun building tree fort, they immediately began bragging about how much progress they had made in my absence. And as they were telling me, I knew that they'd never have to worry about working on it without me again. My friends would never hurt people or pets, but little bugs and insects were fair game. There was a creek that separated our yard from the neighbors and then flowed through a pipe under the ground and into a pool on the other side of the street. And they would bet each other on who could kill the most minnows by throwing big rocks into the water. Now minnows dart around very quickly. Sometimes all you saw was a flash of silver as the sun's light reflected off of their shiny underbellies as they shot out of one hiding place and dove under another. They were very fast, but there was always one who never saw it coming, and after the splash and water rippled away, would float to the top and stare at us with a dead eye. One day, walking home from school, the murderers spotted a toad sunning itself on a moss-covered rock by the water. I had no desire to find out what kind of fate the frog would meet, so as they scrambled down the bank yelling at each other to grab a big stone, I took off the other way. My hurried departure didn't go unnoticed. Before I had even taken two steps, I heard, What's the matter, sissy? Afraid you'll get grossed out? I turned, trying hard not to cry, and screamed, You know I can't play until I change for my school clothes. Though that was the only time I ever did. I wasn't holding back tears from humiliation, but from the sadness I felt for the frog. I wanted to jump down the bank, come to its rescue, be its savior, help it hop away to hop another day, but I couldn't. I was outnumbered, and if I had, I would have been out of the gang. That night at the dinner table I could barely eat, not because of the hash and spinach that covered my plate, but because of the anger that I felt toward myself. I had been a coward, succumbed to peer pressure, afraid to speak my mind. And I vowed to never keep silent again in the face of a killing, no matter what the consequences. 
I would rather be my own gang than be an accessory to murder. Exactly one year after my transformation, the magician performed his last act. It took 75 years for the cancer to show its ugly face, and within a few months, he disappeared from my life forever. I remain indebted to my great-grandfather and also to my friends. They were my biggest deterrence to a life of crime. To this day, I have never been in a fight. If I knew a situation could turn violent, I'd just turn and walk away. Now that I'm a parent, I've tried to instill these values in my three sons. One evening at the dinner table, one of them asked me why I don't hunt or fish, and I replied, We buy our groceries from at the supermarket. We only kill animals if we need to for survival. One day, months later, as I arrived home from work, all of them rushed out to meet me in the driveway. In their hands was a glass jar filled with grass, its lid like shrapnel from a foreign war, stabbed too many times with a screwdriver. Look, Dad, a lizard, they exclaimed. I squinted through the sides of the mason jar until I finally seen the lizard trying to bury itself behind the blades of grass. Maybe we should let it go, I said. What? Why? We want to take it to school tomorrow, the boy said. It looks sad. It probably misses its mommy, I said, hoping that it would soften them. No way. Do you know how fast these things are? Do you know how long we've been trying to catch one of these? Well, I knew how fast lizards were, and I was going to make sure this one was still as fast tomorrow. For the next three hours, through dinner and homework, it never moved a muscle. The boys kept one eye on it the whole time. Finally, I said, Guys, I think it's dying. It hasn't moved all night. It'll be fine, Dad. It's probably just sleeping. Well, I know, but it's out of its environment. It needs to be outside where it can eat. Dad, it's fine. Our friends do it all the time, the boys said. Well, remember what I told you. We only kill to provide for our families. So if it's dead in the morning, which one of you is going to eat it for breakfast? The three of them spun their heads around to see if I was joking, and it was all that I could do to keep a straight face. Instantly, the three of them jumped up from in front of the TV and ran with the jar out the back door. I was watching out of the kitchen window as the grass and lizards slowly slid sideways down the inside of the mason jar. And in the dull yellow gloom of the patio light, when the lizard touched the ground, I saw its dark shadow dart through the weeds as fast as the minnows in the creek from my past, and into a crack in the crumbling patio blocks. As I tucked each of them into bed that night, I told them how proud I was that they let the lizard go, and that they should be proud of themselves too. I kissed them all on the forehead and told them that the good deeds they do as children will pay off twofold later in life. And as I climbed into bed that night, I prayed that they never have to witness the slaughter of pigs or the murder of innocent animals, to deter them from a life of crime. And I prayed that I could teach them morality through the experiences that I have had throughout all my years. My great-grandfather knew exactly what he was doing by letting me tag along that Saturday morning a million memories ago. He knew that the devil, what little of my head in me, would be exercised by that gruesome act alone. I'll be the first to admit that I am no saint. There have been a few acts that I've committed in my life that I wished I could take back. My only hope is that someday when my children and grandchildren think about me 
or talk about me when I'm gone. They close their eyes and see me as a magician.